The next chapter with Prim Saripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is former world number one and U.S. Open champion Andy Roddick, who continues to be the last North American man to win a major, which he did back in 2003. So it has been some time. Andy is not only a phenomenal tennis player and athlete, but he just so happens to be an old and dear friend of mine. As many of you may or may not remember, I am a former tennis player and played at a decently high level as a junior tennis player. I was ranked top 10 nationally and was a member of the U.S. national tennis team. And then after dabbling a little bit on the professional tour, I went on to play at Duke University. Now, even though I was born in Mexico, Missouri at 12 years old, my family and I decided to move to Tampa, Florida, so I could pursue my tennis aspirations. And I attended a tennis academy called Saddlebrook in Tampa, Florida. So some of the big names that came through Saddlebrook included Jennifer Capriotti, Martina Hingis, Pete Sampras, all former world number ones, James Blake, Marty Fish, and also Andy Roddick. So Andy and I have known each other now for a number of not only years, but maybe decades at this point, which makes me feel very old, but we have known each other since we were roughly 12 or 13 years old. So I was so excited to do this interview and sit down with them. We recorded this interview several years ago and I flew all the way down there to meet Andy, do this in person, and it went on for over two hours. So we had to split this up into two parts. In this first portion, we do a lot of catching up. We talk about what it's like for him to be a full-time father now juggling parenting duties with his wife, who's also a model and actress, Brooklyn Decker. And then we take a trip down memory lane and kind of dissect and explore our unique childhoods at the Tennis Academy as uh, these avid and somewhat obsessed tennis players. And I think the two things that stand out for me when I listen to this portion of the interview was number one, the fact that I was still clearly searching for some answers for myself about my own journey as an athlete and as a tennis player. And one thing that I was trying to find out was figuring out what enables an athlete to achieve greater and more long-term success compared to their other peers. What factors allow athletes to become number one in the world, whereas Others can't do that. And also, what kind of traits do athletes develop that benefit them in the athletic arena, but may not necessarily serve them in other parts of their life? And one thing that comes up is the fact of how athletes have this amnesia and they're able to not only let go of the past, but almost like ignore it. Another thing that I notice that I think is really important in this portion of the interview is the awareness that Andy had at such a young age as a teenager to recognize that certain environments, particularly this tennis academy environment, was not going to serve him well as an athlete and also as a person. He needed distraction from tennis. He needed that separation from sport, which is something that we could not get in the tennis academy environment. Because as he points out, your classmate 
was your friend, was your practice buddy, was your enemy because you were going to compete against them in a few hours in a ladder match. But then they would also be your prom date. As he points out, it was a very incestuous environment and there was no separation. And so after listening to this portion, it makes me think, was that the reason why Andy was able to transition away from tennis? But it made my transition that much harder. It's a it's a fun and wide-ranging and at times hilarious conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here's part one with Andy Roddick. at the U.S. Open. That was about, at the time of this taping, that was about mm. a month and a half ago. And I, I haven't seen you in several years. It's been a minute. It's been a while. Life has happened. Life has happened. Kids. We were just talking about kids. kids. have happened. <laughs> the wives yelling at the husband about what they're doing wrong. Yeah. We were just talking about that. We could go it's, on. It's a laundry list. There's yeah. a laundry list, yeah. <laughs> but it was funny, at the, at the U.S. Open, um, that was the first time you and I had ever done like a real, real sort of like interview. Mm-hmm. And it was a sponsored segment and mm-hmm. you and I had the bar behind us and we were facing the camera, but then behind the camera, there was like 50 people and it was really loud. But then the moment you and I started talking, it got really quiet and then everybody just stared at us. Did that feel? <laughs> I didn't even notice it to did be you honest. Not no. it? Are you serious? No. How did you not notice that? I don't know. I just, I was, Cause I, was, you, that, I was, I was enthralled by your questions. And so I just ignored everything else. <laughs> that is so comical. I didn't even think about it. That's unbelievable that you didn't focus. But, it, that, that that is, that, but that's kind of like the thing. I mean, you're used to most studio, right? Yeah. So it's kind of, and we're, we don't have an audience. in this. Yeah. So I guess it's just, I guess it's just the difference in what you're used to, right? That is hilarious. Yeah. But that, that might be why you're a champion and I was never a champion because no. you can get so hyper-focused. I don't think it had anything to do with hyper-focus. Maybe it was just being oblivious. It was so loud in there, <laughs> like to the point where it was like nightclub noise. And I was wondering if it was, um, you know, you have to worry about audio and all that stuff, but then you could hear, it was just like, but you could hear a pin drop. I had also spent the previous three days and the two days after uh, we had talked being in those suites, yeah. talking to people in those suites. So I was, it was, it, it felt like a home game to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seemed like this year you were kind of out and about doing a lot of things. Um, and thank you for sitting here and doing this interview because I know that doing media is not always on the top of your list. <laughs> So I appreciate you sitting down. But it, it seemed like you've, you've kind of been out and about this over the past year. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not around tennis much. Yeah. Um, you know, the U.S. Open is probably the time where, you know, I, I don't know that I have more value uh, than I do at the U.S. Open. Um, you know, so I, I, it was weird. I talked to you. There were just a lot of opportunities this year. And I don't know that yeah. – I don't know what the reasoning was or, or why it happened or – whatever. But, um, yeah, it, it felt, 
that felt busy there also. Yeah, because I was, you know, I was just kind of perusing around on online and digging up some stuff. But like, you, know, you were over at CNBC, you talked to New York Times and all these other places. And But have do you go to the U.S. Open every single year? I go, yeah, I normally go for a couple days. Okay. This year we had a bunch of sponsor stuff, so the press is normally a fallout of the sponsor stuff. Yeah. So uh, oh. I, 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 I'm happy doing media. I, I Media for media's sake feels a little self-indulgent, so... Um, you know, if, if there's a, if there's a reason or we're promoting a product or there's a, a goal in mind, um, like making my old friend Prim happy, then, uh, then I'm happy to do it. <laughs> I love the conversation where it's like, Prim, I don't always do this, but if you really want to do it, I'll do it. I'm going to pull you out of the hole. Press the button. And make you talk. <laughs> And we're just going to re- reminisce about old school memories. Yeah. So buckle down. I'm ready. Um, but how are how are things in life? Um, I feel like these days uh, there's there's obviously less tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of family involved. You were explaining to me that you are you're you're like deep into full time dad mode. Yeah. Um, my wife is, is super ambitious. Um, she's gotten a tech company acquired in the last year. She's on the seventh season of, of her show, Grace and Frankie, which is in LA. Um, I, we choose not to raise our children in, in Los Angeles. So that leaves me, um, home, um, while she's going back and forth and, and bless her, she does, she'll do two red eyes in a week just to spend a couple more days with the, with the kids. And she's constantly back and forth. By the end of a season, she looks, uh, like a zombie, you know, she's, you get the bags and the travel bags and everything. But, um, I think we both put a a huge premium on, on, on FaceTime. You know, we don't want to outsource raising our children. So, um, that, that kind of takes a priority, priority over most things. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm fully aware of when I was playing and, and we were together, um, I was extremely selfish uh, about schedule and what I needed and how I needed to do it and, and everything else. And so, uh, you know, it's it's been nice for me to kind of be part of uh, a team. You know, we were we were also talking off, off camera on how how much of a selfish existence tennis can be, you know, so I was so I, I kind of honestly, I don't think I can take out the selfish DNA in me. It's kind of in it's in me forever. I tried my best to manage it. And now with a kid and one year old in a relationship, then my husband will gladly get on the show and tell me about my selfish <laughs> tendencies that <laughs> every single day. Uh-huh. But um, do you do you have to manage it or do you think that you've completely are you, were you able to shed that? Once you left tennis, I think so. I, yeah. I think pretty quickly. I, I think my selfishness came from an obsession, and you know, my thing was I always knew that there was a huge talent divide between myself and the guys that I was trying to beat for the titles that I wanted to win. You know, we're talking about the guys that are probably the three best of all time now, and they're other world talent. I wasn't that guy, but I had to trim the margins by, in my mind, making sure I slept making sure I knew it was going into my body, making sure I was always prepared physically, uh, that I was training correctly. Um, you know, I, I have a saying, I, I wanted to be a master of controlling the controllables, right? I couldn't yeah. control the pace of a court or, you know, Rogers, general Rogerness, but, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I would be furious if I lost a match because of something that was a choice. 
as opposed to uh, an outcome. You kind of have to be that way. I mean, that's just that's not characteristic of, of tennis players. Um, every single athlete that I've talked to and doing this show, everybody has kind of admitted that we're all a little OCD and control mm-hmm. freaks because we are going, when, whenever you compete, you're going in a completely chaotic, uncontrolled environment. So that's what you do. You do everything that you can to create routines. So it's, um, so there's a little sense of predictability. Yeah. It, right. I, but once I took out that obsession, once the goal of every single day of my life changed for the first time in 20, 25 years, it, it, I just looked at everything differently. You know, you could stay at dinner an hour longer and have more wine and you could mm-hmm. um, schedule a call or a business call kind of anytime and not around your practice schedule and didn't have to be kind of pigeonholed into a certain you know moment in time and you were giving up a day once every four months to do the extracurricular stuff. So it, it, there was a, a sense of almost freedom as far as schedule and geography that I loved. Um, and once I kind of took that away, you know, everything became a little bit easier. So interesting. So when did that obsession with trying to control everything come up? Is, is, did, did you let go of that once you retired tennis or did you let go of it before while you're playing and that allowed you to, to walk away from the sport? No, it was there when okay. I was playing. I was, I mean, I, I I'm, I'm not great at moderation, right? That's that's a it's a weak spot. I'm not, you know, even to this day, if we're three minutes late from the time that I think we're supposed to be leaving, I'm in. I'm like, we got to go. You know, I, I get a little, and we're we're so kind of obsessed with time uh, in sports, and I never. It's funny because I was late to this today, but <laughs> thank you. You were, uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Don't even say. Minutes late. Don't even say. It. My friends watching this be like, oh my gosh, you must have been in a a panic, and <laughs> it's, it's like my biggest nightmare. But anyways. <laughs> You know, I was so time controlled and and and, yeah. and and so old habits die hard. But um, kind of the biggest parts of, of of being selfish, I feel like they went away. I remember driving out of New York City after the U.S. Open was over as my last event. And as I'm crossing the bridge, it was just like this. It felt like a deep breath. And it just felt like in it was 2000, in, in 2012. 2012? Yeah. And it after just, you retired yeah, and you left? New York City. Like I was done, I, I made yeah. the second week and I had a nice little run. And I remember driving out to where there was no more obligations to the U.S. Open. I didn't have anything around the corner. There was nothing. I remember driving over the bridge. I was heading, I drove down to Philadelphia uh, to see a friend. And um, it was just, just like relaxed. It was just kind of easy. Oh my God, that's easy. crazy. Yeah, it was, it was a very strange moment. Um, I have to digest that for a minute because... You know, in talking to athletes, I think the walking away from sport, physically, um, metaphorically speaking, is so hard. Mm-hmm. And I think every athlete processes it differently. We, I think everybody gets to a point where there's this like grind, it's confusion, it's tough, you love it, you hate it, and then and then you have a moment of clarity. Mm-hmm. So that means that your confusion happened many months before it wasn't even but it was it was uh it's strange like i would have been i would have had a lot more questions at at that point i had won i'd still won two out of my last five events Mm -hmm. and i could still play um i think i was i had injuries that year but i was somewhere around 15 in the world um but i didn't think that i could go through murderer's row of murray Djokovic fed nadal three out of five sets over the course of two weeks 
my shoulder would, it, it was, it was, for instance, I started the U.S. Open in 2012. I was serving 140 something at the first round, and by the time I finished, it was like 127. It was just this kind of slow fade, and we were, we would get fatigued. So, I just didn't think I could win the tournament, the biggest tournaments. And I was like, if I win smaller ones, does that change anything? Um, and, and and I didn't think so. But where I'm jealous of of team sport athletes is, I could have been a very, very, very good second or third option on an NBA team mm-hmm. at that point in my career. You I, I sort of hung around on the bench, helped out with I don't leadership. even think I don't even think bench. I think, you know, you're fifteen. I mean, there's twenty four guys on all star teams in the NBA, but that doesn't do it in tennis if you right. want to win slams. I mean, you're 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 having to win an MVP award. And I wasn't at that level um anymore. But um I think it would have been a much tougher decision on on timing and everything in a team sport. Um I, I wasn't walking away from a franchise. I wasn't walking away uh, from a given city's fan base. Um, for me, I didn't believe I could win. It was very, I, I woke up one morning, I went to bed the night before, uh, I was an active tennis player. I woke up the next morning, thought about it and went in that afternoon and retired. That morning. I thought about it that morning. I called Brooke was out running errands. I said, you have to come home. I'm thinking crazy things. And, uh, she came back and we kind of went through it. I think I said, I think I'm going to retire. And she goes, when I go now. And, that afternoon at, you know, that was probably a conversation at 10 a.m. I called my my team and one, one at a time they came up and I told them what I was going to do. And then at the U.S. Open, I don't know, it was at four or five o'clock that evening. I had a press conference and I said, this is going to be the last term I plan. That was it. It feels like it happened so quickly. It was quick. It was it was the same day. I decided the same day. And, and but did anybody have it? I mean, was Brooklyn like, hold on, let's talk about this? Or had you guys talked about it before? No, I, I, I thought I'd play. I, I always knew I was going to finish the U.S. Open. So for me, it, okay. it was, it was, can I do this and train the way that I have? Can my body hold up for another year? That was the trade-off. And then, you know, year by year basis, and I didn't know. And you know, there were there were other things um, that I was interested in. Which, you know, kind of already started uh, a company, the foundation. You know, there there was there were things that I wanted to get to. Um, and so that the whole mix, I had everything on one side and then the other side was, you know, still had a couple years left on some contracts. And I was like, is that why you're going to keep playing? And the most innocent parts of us that start playing a sport we love, that's not why you do it. And, and, uh, so that if I go, if that's the only concrete reason, um, or the motivation for why I'm going to stay out here, that's it's for me, it wasn't worth doing. Uh, you did it on your 30th birthday. Mm-hmm. So that was very fitting. Um, that morning you said you were having thoughts, like what kinds of things were going through your head? I woke up in the morning and I won my first round at the U S open, um, started the tournament fully, you know, I was, I was still a tennis player. Um, won my first round, I woke up the next morning, um, shoulder hurt a little bit and I instantly started like freaking out about a match. Two days later, I had a night match that had been scheduled. Uh, maybe I didn't know what the schedule was, but I, it was a couple days away against Bernard Tomic, who you know, at that time was an up and coming you know, thing. And I just started stressing out about it. I was like, this is dumb. Like I'm going to be a stress ball for the next two days. I don't know if I have the goods to catch lightning in a bottle and to give myself a look at the basket anymore. And just the more I thought about it, I was like, why, why? And I, I kind of walked through it and I was like, I think that's it. I just, I just think that's it. And then the questions that you were asking, had it felt like the meaning of tennis had kind of been lost? No, it just, when I didn't believe that I had the upside to do what I wanted to do in the game, um, 
at that point, it felt like a job. And at, up till that point, it had always felt like an opportunity. So they were very different things. Now, knowing that you're not a person of moderation, I am not a person of moderation mm-hmm. either. I'm either going zero or 200 miles per hour with my hair on fire. Mm-hmm. So that makes a little bit more sense about mm-hmm. why you would just say like, uh, you know, you didn't want to be a neutral. Mm-hmm. You just wanted to. I didn't want to run out the shot clock. You know, and I, I, I always had this thing where I knew I was going to retire at the U.S. Open, and I always wanted to retire knowing that I could still play a little bit. I don't know why. Maybe it's just an ego thing. And for me, it was kind of fun, like the two, three, four years afterwards, you'd go play and they go, can he still play? Like, can he, can he kind of do it? Of course. And, I wa- and I wanted to be able to still play, but I, I, wanted, I would rather have that conversation as opposed to, you know, limping out the door, 90, 100, 110, the slow fade to where it's not your choice whether or not you're on tour anymore. You actually got, you got, you got faded out because you can't play. And that was like a fear of mine. I was like, that would, in my mind, props to the people who love it enough to get faded out. I did not want that at all. It's so crazy to talk to different athletes and how everybody's approach is different. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, there are some that want to go out on their own terms Mm -hmm. at the peak or as best I can mm-hmm. at the peak, while others say, I'm going to go down scrapping and clawing and biting. Mm-hmm. And we can think of a gazillion athletes who have done that mm-hmm. and they will continue to play well into their thirties and maybe early forties. And we're like, wow, this is getting ugly, but it's, you know, everybody, I am not critical of anybody. Um, because for me personally, it's just, which is the whole reason why I'm doing this show. I mean, retirement is not, the only transition that athletes face, but it's one that's um, that's extremely personal to me because for me, my my career ended after college, um, and it was it was I don't know I was unprepared for that moment. You feel I, like you're losing an old friend, and you were able to fight with that friend, and it was good yeah. times, bad times, but it was it, it's a strange thing to come to it's terms even, with. Yeah, it's yeah. not even like an old friend for me. It's like my first love, my first. Mm. It's that. It's that first relationship, you know, when you hear about people that uh, she was my first love, my mm-hmm. first love, and they broke your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of love. There's also also a lot of hate, but there's so much invested in it. And then not only that, we it's not just us being invested in it. Our families are so invested in it. And I think that's what's also, you and I have known each other since we we're 12 and 13. Mm-hmm. I remember your mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom says hello, by the way. <laughs> Tell your mom I say hi. I <laughs> Blanche, and I remember your your poodle, yeah. Nick. Yeah, that's right. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. uh, but like our families, I remember your mom being there. Um, well, it, you- it, it is like a little traveling circus of a family too. It is. You, you know, it's, it's in all, you know, a lot of times it's, your social existence too. And I think that's another thing that's really hard for athletes to walk away from. Sure. So my social existence always kind of was at home. I didn't like hanging out at the courts. I had, you know, a PT that we would set up a hotel room next to my hotel room. And that's where I would do my work. I wasn't, you know, the, the person who arrived at the courts at 9am and left at, you know, 8pm and had ah. six meals at the courts. You know, I, I like to get in and do my work and I, and I left, I, you know, I didn't like seeing the same faces every day, 300 days a year, you know, I, I kind of kept it a little tighter. So my social existence didn't, didn't exist on tour. I have, you know, my great friends, our good friend, Marty and James and their lifelong friends, um, of mine, but I didn't feel the need to always be around it. 
And I think that made it maybe a little bit easier to walk away also. So what did you do when you weren't around it? How'd you, what, where'd you find the balance? Uh, I don't how know. Do you, I don't know. How do you find balance? I like the strange thing. I was so excited for this conversation because it's like, it's weird when you know somebody from childhood mm -hmm. and I only remember you from that to those two years, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like I've known you for so long, but yet I don't know you at all as an adult. You know what I mean? Strange, yeah. um, and so our experience at the tennis academy at Saddlebrook mm -hmm. where we went um, in Florida, there was like, there was no balance. Mm -hmm. We were training five hours a day. We went to school in the morning. Mm -hmm. Everybody that, that was there, I, I'm, I was born a nerd. I'm still a nerd. So I, I tried my best to study and whatever. Mm -hmm. But most people that were there didn't really care about school. They were there to become a professional athlete. Mm -hmm. Golf, tennis, yeah. football, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So how did you find balance? I don't think I had any for a long time. That's I, I think um, I think that's probably why it was so appealing to me in the, the tennis afterlife. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's weird. I don't I, I, I don't hardly I, I don't really think backwards much I don't I don't really think about tennis too often like I, I just don't it doesn't today I, today 2019 I, yeah I, was I there a period after you retired where you thought about it not a lot I mean it, it's kind of like I don't know, look forward you know it, 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 the greatest hits album is fine but what's next you know it's it's <laughs> uh, you know I wasn't I wasn't wasn't that interested in it and I, and I don't know why I think I had other interests. I was always curious about, you know, I, I'm, I don't commentate. Um, I, I don't often, I, I, for me, if you feel too comfortable, you're not pursuing knowledge. You know, I'd, I'd rather kind of get into a space and, and learn about it and ask questions and be the dumbest person in the room. To me, that is more appealing than kind of doing the same thing over and over and over. Something about being an athlete, you kind of have to be conditioned to never look to the past. Mm -hmm. like you have to look to the past objectively to learn from your failures and losses and then move forward. And I know that I have, I am the same way where any, really anything, even with like, sadly, uh, teenage, my teenage years and 20s, even with relationships, mm -hmm. once it was done, I never looked back and I was oddly, strangely, like, could move forward very efficiently. Cold, Prim. I'm so <laughs> cold. That's so cold. But I wonder if it's... I was... All your experts are going, I was over you very quickly. I, you well, meant... When you put it like that, you meant nothing to me. <laughs> when you put it like that, it sounds so cold. <laughs> no, you put it like that. <laughs> I'm not paraphrasing. No. <laughs> interview is going horribly <laughs> no but like but I think what I, eventually what I learned about myself is that there was something about how at least personally my my life operated where um you know I was born in Missouri you were born in Nebraska mm -hmm. and then I moved to Florida at 12 and that was like heartbreaking for me to have to leave my family and friends and tennis had you um there's a lot of sacrificing where you have you're, you're moving around a lot. You're leaving a lot of family or friends behind, mm -hmm. and you kind of have. I had to develop a thick skin, an armor, if you will, to be able to, so I could withstand having to move forward all the time. Mm -hmm. 
I just wonder if that's that's a part of it because I am the same way today where once thing something is done, I don't allow myself to look back. And it's you know what I'm saying? I do. I, I think as much as that, like there aren't many moral victories in tennis. Like you win, you lose. It's pretty clear cut. You can't have a good game. You know, in a team sport, you can have you can be playing great. There's a silver lining. Your team loses. I'm getting better. Like there, there's a there's a kind of a divide with tennis. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, I played well. You win, you lose, and there, it's just a very it's like the fairest of existences. Like it's yeah. just very so. I think for a lot, I still view things. It's like, it's, there's not a lot of gray area to me. It's like win, loss, you know, you lose, move forward. What's next? Like, it's a very kind of clean clinical break type, type, uh, type thing. And so do you think you just adopted that philosophy because that's the way tennis is? It's just easier. Maybe. It's cleaner that way. You, you're, you're taking me to places that I, like, I haven't even thought about it. I really haven't. Um, yeah, it, looking back yeah that's probably we're, we're, we're probably pre-programmed to uh to view other things that way just because that's the way we viewed life and ourselves for a while yeah i mean I, I i don't for a while i didn't like going back into the past mm-hmm. but once i got to a certain point i realized i had to mm-hmm. because there were things that were holding me back and they were a part of my coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms mm-hmm. you know and I enjoy this conversation because you knew me too as a, mm-hmm. as a kid and it's interesting to kind of dissect um, at least where our child childhoods overlap mm-hmm. because it shaped a lot of who we are today. That's a weird thing. I mean, we went like, think how crazy this is. And I think we touched on, it. we were 13 and 14. We went to Cali, Colombia <laughs> in the nineties. Yeah. And like walk down the street to like the market to get food and like, like that's not normal. That's a strange, you know, it's like, I don't know. Why, I don't understand. So back then it felt normal. That's what I'm saying. Like, but my, my wife now, she, like, she's like, Oh wait, so you, your mom took you to the <laughs> USO like when you're nine and you would just walk around like New York city. And, and she's like, I was like, wait, yeah, she's like, but you wouldn't let us. I go, no way. I, I don't know. Don't ask me to marry the two. I don't. I don't know. It's it is strange, but it's the way it was. I mean, you you'd go to you'd fly to. I remember flying to to Hong Kong, and we stayed in the Salvation Army, and it's an open room, and there's forty beds because that's where we could find a place to stay that night, and to the point we had. When is that? This is this was like 1997. This was yeah. It was. Oh, so you're a teenager. You're yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we, we you know, but like you tell that story, and people are going. What? Like, where'd your luggage go? I was like under the bed and we had to buy bells to put on it so no one would take it. You know, and it's like, you know, so, but it's, it's just a strange thing. But like, it's crazy. It's like eye on the prize. That's what you had to do. You go over there and you, you try to play and get points. And it's just like kind of, it just never stops. Uh, I want to go back because I have bits and pieces of your childhood, but I don't have like the whole shape of the story. Mm. So you were born in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, Midwestern guy. You still a Huskers? Obviously, you're still a Huskers fan. Yep. Who are your sports teams these days? Pretty much Nebraska. I Nebraska. have barely watched sports since my son's been born. 
Um, Which is two years ago. This is yeah. our son's four years ago. Oh, four years so ago. So <laughs> I, I, worked, I worked at Fox Sports for a while, and I was yeah. very well-versed, and now I'm not. Uh, Nebraska is the is the one that okay. never dies. Like, that's that's every Saturday of my childhood, like my dad. And you still do that? Yelling at the screen. Yeah, when I, if I don't get overruled and have to watch Paw Patrol for the 27,000. <laughs> Okay. And then, but you grew up in Texas. Mm-hmm. Texas till uh, I was 11. Then I came and joined you in Florida, I think. Um, at some point around there, uh, finished high school there. And then um, Austin, Texas has always, it's home for me. Um, I won the US Open when I was, so I was in Florida, turned pro, had a little bit of success. And then as soon as I won the U.S. Open, I got on a flight the next day to go to Austin to buy a house. Oh, wow. And go back. And that's where I wanted to be. Austin's a good place. It's an up-and-coming. It's where it, a lot of tech... I think it's up-and-come. Like, it's... It is. It's, it is. You're it's, right. No, no, no. Like, that's, the traffic was suggest it's there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like no, a real, no, no. It's like it's a real city now. Come. Yeah, yeah. It's a good... Yeah. Past yeah. tense or present tense. Yeah. Uh, what was your first exposure to sports? <laughs> not, not just watching... I'm trying to remember. Um... Participation. I, I think the reason I played tennis is because there was a tennis club like three blocks down the road in Nebraska. Oh, and right. I didn't even really play. It was like it was more like babysitting. But on one of the indoor courts, I remember these like Snoopy cutouts and you would take the ball and you would try to hit the Snoopy cutout. And that was pretty much it. That's my first memory of anything. And so that was that. But I, I had... Did you play any other sports? Uh-huh. I know you played basketball in, in high school. Badly. But... Uh, yeah, I played, I played kind of everything. Uh maybe under 10 soccer or baseball. Um, and then I think at a certain point, the, the sport chooses you. That's what you just said. I, I remember Andre Agassi saying that in his book mm. open. He said, which I is like one of the best books ever. He is. I just shared that with uh, somebody the other day. Mm-hmm. There's only been one, one autograph that I've gotten in 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I've run into some athletes. Like, mm-hmm. I really don't, I'm not mm-hmm. somebody for, for autographs, but after I read that book, and he came to Miami when I was in Miami working. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I got to get his autograph. Because that book was life-changing the, for me, personally. This is a side tangent and probably yeah. has nothing to do with this yeah. show. But he did one of the coolest things. And that book came out. I was, I think he had just retired and I was the top American. But I was the guy who was going to get asked a question. Because there was some pretty big stuff in there. Like, there were some pretty yes. heavy things. Yep. And so, maybe two or three months before it was actually released. He called me and he said, listen, Andy, he goes, I'm not going to ask you to say anything on my behalf. There's some stuff in here. He goes, I'm going to send you a book and I want you to at least be able to read it. So you're prepared for your answers when when it comes out. And he goes, I can't tell you what to say. He goes, I would like the opportunity. If you have any questions to ask me, at least tell you about it from my perspective. And it was, I thought that was a great heads up. Like, yeah. I thought it was really nice because all of a sudden it would have been like, you know, what do you think of Andre's hardcore drug use? And I would have been like, uh, That's heavy. I don't know. He did that. He extended mm-hmm. that courtesy. Yeah. And he, he sent me. You were the American. Yeah. So he like overnighted. And he was a, a bit of a mentor to me when I first came on tour. And um, yeah, but he overnighted a book and he's like, take a week with it and then just give me a call. Wow. And then it, but it was, I thought that was a, I thought it was a really cool move. Yeah, that is. Uh, yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. Uh, Andre Agassi would do something like that. Yeah. I love him. It was cool. I loved his book. Uh, so you played basketball, baseball. You said what else? Soccer, Soccer tennis. Yeah. And at what point did tennis really come to the forefront, or when did it choose you? 
I think early. I mean, in when all, did you start? I don't remember. I, I remember my brother would go to like take lessons, take lessons, and I hit against the backboard. Probably six. Okay. Five, six, something like that. So um, at that point, you were in Texas. I was just around my brother, and that's what he did. So I'd spend, you know, an hour and a half at a tennis center. You end up doing something. You go get a racket from the demo thing, and you take it out to the backboard, and you start hitting. But I don't really remember. John? Yeah, I don't really remember, like, the first time. It was Caswell Tennis Center um, in, in Austin. Um, but I don't I don't really remember. But, I, I, I mean, I felt like I was always kind of good at tennis, not to sound like an arrogant person, but... At nine years old, I was number one in the city in 16 and unders, you know, and then, you know, you kind of start traveling and you, you, you live in a small enough place. You're like, I'm, then you travel enough and you realize, oh, there are other people out there who are really good too. <laughs> but in the meantime, though, when you were young, you were just blowing everybody out. Yeah. And so you, yeah. you kind of have this complex that where you think you're, you're really good. And, um, I don't know, 12 years old, I, w- I finished number one in the country and, 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 you know, and so then it's like, okay, you can played a little bit. I was tiny. Um, you were. Yeah. So you don't. called you bear. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And then, uh, yeah. So I guess it just went from there. But, you know, when you when you start having results and then ten, you play well enough, there's a national tournament in March and then in August and then in October. So it's not really time to do all the other stuff because you, right. you're kind of always getting ready for something. And so I don't even think it was like a, a conscious decision to like okay now i'm just playing tennis i just think it kind of happened to where are you willing to give up national indoors for basketball season or you know whatever it was and the answer was no because i actually you know i'd be participating on a basketball team i might actually win nationals in in this other thing so i think that i think i think that's how it happened yeah i was actually just having a conversation with gerald henderson and he was saying uh that he had made the decision at 14 Mm -hmm. to play basketball over golf and this was after Tiger Woods had looked at his game and said he was further along than I was at 14. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the athletes that I've I've talked to, and this was this was my experience, um, is that there's usually some sort of juggling as a multi-sport athlete, mm-hmm. and then you come to a point where you say, "Okay, I'm going to choose." But for you, it just kind of happened naturally. I think so. We moved. You know, tech, do you want to start with like a new team when you move? You know, so. And my brother was just always at the tennis court. So I think it was easier on my parents, you know, it just, and I was pretty good at it, you know, so it, 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 a lot of it just made sense. So at what point did you realize I'm good at this sport Mm -hmm. and we've got to make some changes now because whatever we're getting in the state of Texas Mm -hmm. is not enough and we're going to move to Florida? Well, again, it was my brother. He was there. And so our original plan was to go to Florida and we started off in South Florida, um, for his last two years of high school because we didn't want to be apart as a family. And at the time, and there, there's training options now in Texas, but at the time, um, there weren't. And so we went there. And now that I'm thinking through it, that's probably what ended up driving me into the lane of Texas. Although we moved there and there was like an academy. So I was playing kids for the first time that were really good and I was getting beat by kids. And it was, you know, so... But and then you got yanked. But my 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 brother's tennis dictated our terms, and then all of a sudden I was there. And by the time we were supposed to leave, because it was a temporary thing, we're renting a house in Florida. um, By the time we were supposed to leave, I was number one in the country, and so it was like, yeah, and so it was like, maybe we hang out a little bit and see if see if this yeah see if this goes anywhere. So you were really only only going to be in Florida as long as your brother was there. We were the original plan when I was ten. I mean, was to go there. We wanted to be with my brother the last two years of high school before I went to college. And so, and they're like, Oh yeah, you can play there too. You, you know, you'll have fun. And 
you know, you like to play. And, and then we that two-year plan turned into a 10-year plan. <laughs> so when you, you started in Boca, though, that mm-hmm. was, and then went to... At what point were you at Saddleboro? So that was when, so that was when my brother went to college. Oh, okay. So you said and then it was like another option. Yeah, and so then it was like, well, if we're gonna stay here, let's let's get serious about it and go hang out with the Prim Surfer Pats of the world. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's like, on cue. I was like, and that's when your life let's, changed. Let's go forever. get let's go get beat by the fourteen year old girls for a little while, and then let's you know. And then let's uh, let's go well, figure it out. So you were, I'm trying to remember, you were 12, and I think I was 13. Yeah. 13, 14. I'm a year and a half older than you. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, but it's this weird dynamic because it was just this year. I was, when you're a 13 and 14 year old girl, as we all know, we develop faster than, mm-hmm. than boys do. And so at, I stopped growing at 12, let's mm-hmm. be honest. I've <laughs> been 5'2 since then for 30 years. And, uh, but I remember being 13 and 14 and I was bigger than you. Mm -hmm. And the other person that was on our court was Travis Rettenmeyer. Mm -hmm. He eventually went to UCLA and also played on the tour a little bit. Mm -hmm. I was bigger than the both of you guys. Mm -hmm. And it sounds obnoxious now talking to you because most people know you Mm -hmm. as this, you know, big time player. But at the time I was annoyed because I was like, I'm on the court with these two little guys. I feel like I should be crushing them. But we had a good time, though. Yeah. You guys were, you both of you guys were very talented. You were. Travis is more talented. Travis was really good. He was really, he had great hands. Yeah. He had great hands. Yeah. So you were 12 and I was 13 or 14. Yeah. What do you remember from that year? Because you were, you were only at Saddleboro for, what, a year? Two years? Two years. Two years. I remember, it was a strange thing because there were older kids. Yeah. I didn't like to back down much. And so I felt like I got in the hot water a lot with, with a lot of the older kids. And, um, it was just a strange thing. It was like a, it was like a race, but it, it, it was, it felt very foreign for the first time, right? Like socially and with tennis and you're out of your comfort zone and there's people from all over the world. And, you know, you, you'd beat a 15 year old and that, that guy would mean mug you at school for a week, you know? So it was like, it was, a uh, it was a strange thing. Like it was very incestuous. Like school was the same as tennis was the same as it was, uh, it was strange. There was like, as you alluded to earlier, there was zero sense of normalcy. Like there was no, it was, you know, the person who you were sitting next to in English class, you were going to have to play a ladder match against at three o'clock. And then it's just your neighbor. I mean, we live two buildings apart in these little, college buildings and it, so you'd go to dinner and you'd pass the people who you were playing and or going to school with it was a very it was a weird dynamic for me I it was a it was a it was a strange thing and I felt like being the way I was my temperament the way I was I was you know I, I like to pull people into the gutter a little bit when we were playing matches and so I I don't think I would have liked it at 15 if there was some 12 year old doing that so it was uh it, it was a it was a weird weird time it was uh, because there were only really two academies at that, in the mm. early 90s. It was Saddlebrook, which is where we went, and then Nick Voltaire, which is mm-hmm. now IMG Academy. So with, with us, Capriati was there. Mm-hmm. She was much older, five, five, and then even six and a half mm-hmm. was older than you. But back then, I mean, the people that have come through there, Martina Hingas came later. Mm-hmm. Blake came much later. Marty, Marty came after you. Mm-hmm. Him and I crossed paths uh, around 15, 16. Yeah. Mike Russell. Yeah. So the, but at that time, there were about 100 kids, but it was really like the best of the best. Mm-hmm. And me being an adult, and I've been back there many times, 
and uh, going back with a couple of my friends. I don't know if you remember Katie Thompson. Yeah. So she 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 has memories of going back there um, with her brother Anthony, and they they said that they would get this sick feeling mm-hmm. in their stomach. It's like this nervousness, this preparing for fight or flight, you know, because it was so competitive. It was a factory. It was a factory, but it was better than Terry's. Yeah. I chose Saddlebrook because it was a more. It was a smaller one. factory. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't as much of a machine. Yeah. I, I did better when I left. Um, you did better. I went to a normal school. Um, there was and that's some, what I'm so interested. There was there was separation between. Like the kids at school didn't really, they knew I played tennis, but they didn't know that I was good. They didn't know it was, it was like, you're getting taken for face value and what you do on a tennis court didn't define who you were socially at school. Um, the way I acted on the tennis court is I, I, I like to think it's very different than the way I act away from the tennis court. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you, we just, just differently like turn into a different human kind of. Um, and so I did way better and I flourished away from that kind of fishbowl of, 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 of tennis-ness. <laughs> what, what would have happened if you stayed? Do you think you would have gotten burned out? It, it's a, it's a interesting point to dissect because it's, it's a problem in youth sports right now. And it's, you know, because it, I, I, don't, I just didn't like it. Cause it was, it was, there was like this Uber bro, like super older kid hierarchy, it was just a weird, weird thing. So it was absolutely a class system there. Yeah, and it, it was it was very different for me. It was like we got along. You were sweet, but I think it, it was it was different because we weren't. You know, you said you you trained with Travis and I. We would never ever. Travis and I would fight. We're two dudes. <laughs> we would never fight. You know what I'm right. saying? It was just yeah. a weird. It was a different thing. And there was a. I, I didn't like the. I didn't like the culture. I didn't like. There, there was not a lot of stress put on being nice, being kind, doing the right things. It was all. Tennis, tennis, tennis. Where are you? Did you win your ladder match? This, that, and the other. And I don't know that I realized that at the time, but I did way better away from that. And when there was separation between life and tennis, and if I lost a tennis match, didn't carry over into school, you know, a day or two later. Yeah, I do remember because when we were there, there was only probably about eight kids. I mean, we were 10% of the school, or sorry, 90% of the school was all high schoolers. Mm -hmm. So when we're, you and I are in seventh and eighth grade, that's still a big difference. In the grand scheme of how we know how school operates today, mm-hmm. one to two years is a major difference. And then when you magnify it on the court, mano y mano, tennis, you know, you're going up against a 15-year-old, there's mm-hmm. a big disparity. But you're, I do remember that when you were, because we were one of the younger ones, and that's why we were on the court all the time. It's because mm-hmm. there was nobody else to play with, mm-hmm. you know, and... What I remember of you, you and I genuinely got along. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I literally like looked to you as a brother, which is why I called you like mm-hmm. little bear. You're some, somehow smaller than me at that time. But I do remember you being very confident and at times cocky. Mm-hmm. But it was I was old enough to know that the people that were a certain kind of cocky I would shut them down and crush them. I could not stay. I did not have a tolerance for that. You know, I had a small, even Mm -hmm. back then I had a strong personality, but there was a confidence about you that I could, I was like totally cool with. Um, And I just wonder if back then, did you know 
your path? Like, did you no. know you, what you were going to? No. So where did that confidence come from? And I ask that because looking back at my career, I wish I was one of those people where I was confident and cocky at times, because I think that would have, I think that would have willed me into a lot more victories and a better performance. And I think that that innate confidence that a lot of champions have like you, I just wonder where that comes from. I don't even know if it was confidence and ability. I think I was very confident in my ability to compete. And, and so I was happy, you know, fighting it out. I was happy competing. I was happy, you know, trying to beat Keith Salmon, even though he might beat me up at school. You know, I was, I was happy trying to, I, the name I was, hilarious. I was happy to try to piss him off because of my competitiveness. Like that's something I knew that I could do every day and maybe do better than, than a lot of people. You know, my, I was, I always say like to this day, I was a very good, bad tennis player. Like the days where I struggled, I would kind of mix it up a little bit, just try to fight, run a little bit. You know, it was, I was, I was a good, bad tennis player. And I, that it, it, there was a cockiness about being able to compete and, and to maybe be tough daily. Um, not in a, like a macho sense, but just kind of okay. dig it, dig in. I do remember you loving to compete. You and Travis both loved to compete. Yeah. You hated drilling. You were one of those players. I love the repetition. I was kind of mm-hmm. Rafa where I needed a lot of repetition and a lot of balls, a lot of routine. Mm-hmm. And you were always really good about um, competing. At, before I came, I, I told my mom that I was going to talk to you. And I'm like, hey, do you have any stories to share? Uh, she started laughing. I was like, I know what story you're going to share. But she always makes fun of, uh, of me which is very normal um, <laughs> <laughs> about you and I went to some tournament, local tournament, and maybe we were coming back or we were having a conversation and the tournament was over. And I said to you, I was like, Oh, I love, you know, McDonald's. I, I treat myself to French fries after mm-hmm. I play a tournament. Mm-hmm. And you made this comment and you were like, Oh, so that's once a year. <laughs> Nobody was it. That's was just like, the worst. Not, <laughs> nobody was true. That's the though. worst thing a kid can say to a kid. I'm like a barrel and a crawl into a hole right now. No, there's a lot worse things that you could say. No, but there was <laughs> but it was true though, because I didn't I didn't play as many tournaments as as some other players mm-hmm. like yourself did. I remember you playing every single weekend. You just wanted to compete. I liked it. Yeah. I I, don't, I would have rather I'm mortified that that's what came to your mother's mind. But um <laughs> She uh, thought it was funny and cute and enjoyable. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, just I, I, I wanted to do. I, you know, I, I some people would play. I wanted to play a tournament every weekend. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't scared to kind of get out there and and do it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even know. It was the cockiness. It part of it was probably overcompensating for being like a small, tiny kid. Mm. Part of it was just probably knowing that I would bring the lunch pail and 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 kind of go through the harder yards. I don't know. So then what happened What happened after Saddlebrook? Did you guys decide to move because you felt it wasn't working? Or did your mom make the decision? What, yeah, I don't, I don't really remember. I knew we were going home or to, to back to South Florida um, where um, we still had a place and went back into normal school, um, which I enjoyed. It's a small private school. Um, you still have to be able to travel. Um, got into a, a, a group where actually Marty ended up coming back to, to South Florida and so we basically had the USTA rejects uh, down down in South Florida. And I think is that are you serious? Yeah. So it was the guy, you know, it was the guys who didn't get chosen for for the national team, maybe like just short, right? So I they cut my funding at a certain year, and then you know they 
Marty was same thing, and then he got good, and then they, they cozy up again. But um, you know, but it was yeah, it was a lot of the guys who weren't on kind of the A team, and I think we all were kind of pissed about it. And I think we, you know, there's six of us, and you know, we created that generation. You know, outside of James, who's a little bit older, we created the top ten players for that generation with Marty and I. You know, who else was just, in that group? Uh, Jeff Boyd, Dave and Chris Martin, uh, Bo Hodge, um, you know, so there were, there were good players. Um, you know, they they weren't part of the kind of USTA machine, which was like LeVar and Simone Amarico and like basically anyone who had a pretty one handed back in, um, you know, that, that was valued. And so it was, uh, it it was a different thing. And we, we played on, we didn't, we weren't at Saddlebrook where the facilities were amazing and you had hard courts next to clay courts next to you know, two sides of a facility next to a gym, we played on our coach's apartment tennis courts and it was, it was two courts. Um, and then it was like fitness. He's like, go run really far. You know? So it was, it was, uh, it was kind of tapered down and we went to a normal school every day, you know, and and I like that better. That's fascinating because that's not over. So you leave a facility where you have all the resources in the world Mm -hmm. and you're playing and competing with some of the best tennis players. And we had a gym at the time, Mm -hmm. strength and conditioning coach, Pat Etchenberry. Mm -hmm. And then you walk away and, but now you're training with really good players. Mm -hmm. You don't have nearly the resources or facilities that Mm -hmm. you did. And yet, but that's when you started to really make your turn. Yeah. We, we, we would, we all had memberships to the YMCA that's where we went and, and worked out every day. It was like apartment course and then YMCA, but it was awesome. It was the best. So what happened, what what were you ranked at that point? Around 16, so 13, 14, 15, 16, what was your ranking? Mm, 14s, I finished like four. I grew a lot, I grew 5'2 to 5'9 my first year 16s. I dropped to like 50 in the country. Um, wow. The next year, uh, I was one in the country again in 16s. Um, first year 18s, I was, I don't know what I was, but the, the, the thing that kind of took off where we had our high school coach and then um i lost first round of the junior u.s open one year i was probably top 10 in the country but top 40 50 itfs and then i made another coaching change and met a guy named Tariq ben habilis and at that point i was good enough to go anywhere i wanted to for college with uh, a scholarship um but wasn't really thinking about pro tennis i was hoping for pro tennis but it wasn't even after you won, this is after you won U.S. Open. No, no, no. The, I lost first round, and then, um, but all of a sudden, I went and played some grubby money tournaments, like in Miami, beat a guy who was like three hundred in the world, and it stuff just started kind of moving. I won Eddie Her, I won Orange Bowl on the trot, finished that year four in the world from forty in like sixteen. This is my first year, 18s. Yeah. Okay, so you're. Um, and then all of a sudden, the year turns over, and I'm like two in the world in juniors because people had aged out going to the Australian Open. I won the Australian Open juniors, and every match I'm playing at the Australian Open juniors, there's like agents there, and all of a sudden, mm. you know, it, it's it, it changed very quickly. So we're looking at November, you're 50 in the world, and by the end of January, you're the number one junior in the world, um, and you're probably gonna sign. Oh my gosh. Um, and, it happened and, so quickly. And then I won two months later, I won a, I beat a top 40 player in Miami in, in a master series event and, and won that. And then it just went quick. So I went from 40 in the world in uh, juniors to top 10 in the world in like two and a half years. But at one point, if I remember correctly, around 17, you were thinking about quitting. 
I, not quitting, basically giving up on pro. So I, it, I lost in junior Wimbledon to this guy named Michael Trojan, uh, who I think he had a beard. He might have had like three kids. <laughs> he, looked, he looked like he fell out of the pub. And uh, he lost the neck. Like this was – I lost to him. It was like I shouldn't have – like I'm sure he's doing great things now. But it wasn't my best moment on the tennis court. Uh, he lost to Guillermo Coria, who ended up being a really great player. He lost to him 0-0 the next match after I lost to him. Yeah, because he had a letdown over beating a great star like you. No, I wasn't a great star. He just wasn't very good, and I was worse than him. <laughs> it was, so, so that was a match. I remember. Pra- I remember practicing the next. Like, like my coach was like back at it the next day. We, you know, Marty was doing something amazing. He probably made semis or something. But uh, so we're back on the court, like we, junior women, you say like a dormitory, and so he's like training four hours the next day. You suck. I'm like I do suck, and so I remember that day I was just. So fed up. I thought I was terrible. Every racket I had over the bushes, into the woods. I flew home with no rackets. And I'm like, okay, three, you know, I'm junior year. I go, I could probably coach through, I could probably commit early and then I'll just go to college. And this so that's right before your senior year then. Yeah. So there's okay, yep. my junior, well, my, no, I was a year ahead. So I graduated when I was 17. Okay. So I was 16, but it was at the point where I could sign if I wanted to. I could commit and the path would be laid out. Um, and at least they would be, you know, I knew at that level I could, I could play. And then, uh, and you started talking, I know your brother played in college. He played at Georgia. So, I, I hadn't really responded. Okay. I hadn't really talked to any coaches. I hadn't really, but I, I wasn't scared of it. But at that moment I'm throwing the rackets over and that was what was in my mind. Like we're going to commit to college. We're going to go and kind of that's that. And then three months later I was number one in the world in juniors somehow, some way. That doesn't happen to a lot of athletes. <laughs> It, not not that quick, yeah. and because I, for most athletes and champions, you have an inkling. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the the story of. It's almost like I think this happened to you a lot, but it's not the story of oh, I'm sitting at a pizza place mm-hmm. and some an agent spots me and mm-hmm. all overnight I'm an overnight sensation and, and model. You know that doesn't. But it's crazy. Mine was a little weird because normally you do normal school, you do normal school, you do normal school, then you go to a very tennis specific place and then you take off. Mine was a very tennis specific place, normal school, USTA drops you and then all of a sudden it's like you win a couple of matches, it's all between the ears lightning in a bottle. There's a new coach and then you just I just it just went and I felt like invincible. I went out and won challengers right away. I won two tour events in a row as a wild card when I was outside the top 100. Um, I was 150 in the world. The first time I played on center court in Miami, I played a guy named Pete Sampras and I just, yeah, he he was, he was good. (laughs) Um, went out and beat him and it was just like, everything was just, I, at that point I knew I could play. It, It goes in like these, these weird stages. Like I knew I could make a living. You know, when I started winning, you know, I won a challenger at 17, like made the quarters of a tour event. I'm like, I can make a living doing this. And I was fully confident. But mine went from like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, to I got this. Like, it wasn't like a gradual transition. I, I don't know why it was that way. In order for and really anybody, just not even in sports, to be successful, the mm-hmm. time has to be, it has to be the right landscape, the mm-hmm. right time. You obviously have to have the skills. You were, you, you obviously had that. So it makes me wonder, because there's a lot of athletes out there who are trying to become the next generation Mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out what are the right ingredients. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think what would have happened if you had the USDA 
supporting you at the time and you were at Saddlebrook, would you have still become the Annie Roddick that we know today? You don't think so? Mm -mm. So what was it about your path of kind of going backwards where you didn't have those resources that made you better and helped you? I think it creates a little bit of a chip on your shoulder as opposed to an entitlement. I think there have been a lot of entitlements with the route that you're talking about over the last 30 years. You know, there was something like you gain confidence from being on these like crappy apartment courts and going to the Y. You feel like you're earning it. You know, you feel like it's you're doing it the hard way um, a, a little bit. Um, kind of the disconnect socially was always great for me. Um, I didn't want to see the same people all the time. I you wanna, did see the same people, though, right? Well, with both, well who you're training with. I'm talking about like there was a difference. I go to school. Gotcha. And no one knew anything. There was a there was a divide. And I'd see Marty and Bo in the hallways and it's like you're laughing about something. But. It, it wasn't every person, <laughs> you know, there was, there was a divide. Um, so you had that between the two. of balance. I think so. It didn't have to be all tennis all day, every day. No, it was still the, it was still the, the priority. Um, but like you went to prom and it wasn't a prom with other tennis people, you know, <laughs> it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, or like a real prom. Yeah. Um, and I, for some reason I always enjoyed a sense of normalcy and I, I viewed tennis was my job. You know, it wasn't yeah. my social circle. It wasn't my, you know, hobby. And I treated it like a job. And I think that's why I actually did well. Um, I, I wish more of the up-and-coming American players treated it like a job, you know, in, in a profession and a trade and a skill that you had to learn and craft and be responsible for. Um, maybe I'm kind of learning more about myself through actually talking through it. But, yeah, I did thrive like that. And... The kind of separation was what I was attracted to, even even when I was playing a little bit. Interesting perspective from Andy about how he always approached tennis as a job. And I definitely think there is some truth to that, especially once you reach the elite and professional levels. But I don't necessarily know if it can start out that way, especially as a child. I think there has to be that sense of innocence and passion and, and just sheer enjoyment, having fun as a child when you're engaging with sport. But everybody has different ways of approaching things. And clearly that worked for Andy. But the one thing that I absolutely loved hearing from him was the fact of that he's learning about himself as he's talking through some of these things. And if there's anything I've ever wanted from this show is just to do that, to create this safe, trusting space for athletes so they can share, discuss, reflect, understand, and also heal from their experiences. And if any one of my guests can feel that way and, and be able to talk about some of these topics that spark a curiosity about something they've never explored, then this show is doing exactly what it was set out to do. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Andy. Stay tuned for part two next week. The next chapter with Prim Saripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.